Well, if you got a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 66. Uh, please go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one off the guest connection table in the back. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 66. We're going to do the whole, whole song today. Um, but before we get there, um, I just want to ask you something. A parent who's wrapped up in the success of their child, a woman caught up chasing her dream career, a young man dreaming of his future wife, a high school student longing for the day when they can finally get out of mom and dad's house, an addict seeking to find comfort in another hit or, or drink of the bottle, young parents disappointing that, disappointed that raising children was more difficult than they thought, aspiring parents struggling with and wrestling through fertility and, and, and cursing God in the process, a couple married for years and finding themselves growing apart, a man filled with regret looking back on the past 10 years and wondering what could have been. What do these people have in common? What do these people have in common? At the foundational level, I believe that we have replaced our God-given desire for awe with lesser awe. And what I mean is, is, is this. God has created human beings for awe. We love to be impressed, right? Um, I'm notoriously known for over-celebrating when my sports teams do really well. Right? So if you're, if you're watching a game with me, I will intentionally, because you know, I'm, I'm a raging extrovert, it's okay, we have permission to do this, but I'll like run around the room, hoot, hoot, holler, and yell, scream really, really, really loud because I'm impressed with a sports team. It's in those moments I'm, I'm filled with awe, right? The fall of Genesis 3 has, has fundamentally changed the way you and I experience awe. What, what we've done is we've, we've replaced awe of God, which is what we were designed for, with awe of self. Awe of self. We are far more impressed with ourselves than we are our king. And what these people have in common is an awe problem. It's an awe problem. Even Albert Einstein understood the central purpose of awe in the human experience. Listen to what he says. He says, he who can no longer pause to wonder and stand wrapped in awe is as good as dead. His eyes are closed. So if, if, if Einstein can see that, that every human being has a longing for awe, then, then, then what he's doing, he's, he's, he's grasping at something very, very foundational that because you and I are made in the image and likeness of our creator, we long for our creator and we, we seek to fulfill that longing in, in creation rather than the creator. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, right? When, he said, when he's talking about the way God has revealed himself in creation and he says he indicts humanity itself and he says this, they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator who is blessed. Forever. He, he drives at the foundational problem of humanity by our desire to worship and serve creation rather than the creator. We are filled with law and seek to have our awe fulfilled in creation and not Christ. The problem confronting us in the word of God this morning is, 
is not that we're incapable of being in awe. I think each of us are very capable of being in awe of something. The, the problem confronting us this morning as we, as we open up to Psalm 66 is that we've sought to fulfill our longings for awe apart from God himself, and it has left us exhausted and disappointed and empty. Empty. In Jeremiah 2, when, 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 when uh, the prophet Jeremiah is explaining the problem of Israel, he, he diagnoses their evil by saying this. He says, they're, they're seeking water in cisterns that are broken. They're, they're, it's, think of it this way. You remember, have, has anybody ever been to a gold mine before? And you, you, you dip the, the thing with holes all in it in water and you shake it out and it, the sediment stays in and you try to find and see if there's gold in there. This is what it looks like for us to try to find life. We drink out of cups that perpetually are filled with holes all over the place. And every time we go to take a drink, we're left more thirsty than we were before we began. Einstein is talking about this, right? And Psalm 66 is going to point us in the direction of where our awe and our capacity for awe can be fulfilled. It's a beautiful song. It awakens the tired believer, right? It, it awakens the tired believer uh, from a sleep, reminding them of the glory that they so often take for granted. But Psalm 66 also does something else, right? For, for those who are maybe unfamiliar with the Bible or, or unfamiliar with Christianity or they just haven't been exposed to the things of God, maybe they're, they're a skeptic or a doubter, maybe they're just an unbeliever, whatever it is, Psalm 66 shocks us because what it does is it, is it causes us to see God through the lens of Scripture and not our own opinions. Because you and I so often want to craft an image of God and an image of Jesus that suits and tickles our fancy and makes us comfortable and satisfied when in fact the God that Scripture reveals is a little different. <clears throat> Psalm 66 is going to push our imagination to maybe think, in God, God of, think of God in ways that we typically don't. And so would you open with me to Psalm chapter 66. We're going to read the whole psalm together and then, and then go back through some, some different sections. Psalm 66, verse 1. For the choir director, a song, a psalm. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about his, the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoiced in him. He rules forever by his might he keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap and placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. 
I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings. With the fragrant smoke of rams, I will sacrifice bulls and goats. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. Father, help us as we unpack your word this morning. Turn our eyes to see the beauty of your law and help us to see the areas of our lives where we have sought fulfillment and longing in creation rather than you. God, may we amplify your glory this morning as a church in unity. Amen. Familiarity is really dangerous, right? Like, I, I, in, in everything new that we experience, there's like this, this honeymoon phase, right? And typically, we, we talk about this when it refers to marriage, but we don't connect it to other big life changes, right? Like a, like a new job, right? Somebody gets, gets to work somewhere new for the first time, and everything is great, and, and things are awesome, and then three months later, you or like dragging your feet into work and hate yourself? Like what in the world happened in that three months to make you not like your job as much as you did the first time you walked in it? But, but what about church, right? We experience fellowship with a new body of believers and we love it. And then it, we, we're, we're so enwrapped in the beauty of what God's doing in a congregation and we're excited about it and we, we enjoy seeing what the Lord is doing. And then a year, two years, three years, four years later, we start to get to know the people and the honeymoon phase dies and we have more to complain about in our local church than we have to appreciate God for. Or any sort of life change, right? Like moving to a new place. I think of the, the student in middle school who can't wait to be in high school and three days after they get to high school, they can't wait to be in college, right? Or a new relationship, whether it's a friendship or you meet somebody that's attractive and you're like, hey, and they're like, hey, and then after a month you're like, meh. <laughs> I remember the first time walking into my job, the multiple jobs that I've had, and, and like learning how to do the procedures really carefully, like dotting all my I's, crossing all my T's, working really slowly, meticulously, making sure I'm careful, I don't want to do anything wrong, right? And then three months later, I just don't give a rip. I could care less if your onions are cut the right size. I'm making your salsa anyway, right? <laughs> I worked in food a lot, sorry. But the more you do something, the more familiar you get, right? And I think for us, we, like, we stop at familiarity. We think familiarity is the problem. Right? We, we see that like, oh man, well the more familiar I get, the, the less grateful I am for this. Right? So as I get more familiar, I become less and less and less grateful. And guess what? That, that decrease in your gratitude as things get more familiar, that shows an awe problem. If familiarity leads you to cut corners and complain in your job or your relationship or parenting or, or whatever it is you're doing, it reveals an awe problem. It can be easy for us to think that familiarity is the issue. 
or that we have a contentment issue, right? Like, I'm just not content, I'm not satisfied, like, nah, I just, I just need to change this, or I just need to do this. And, and so we start to micromanage our lives thinking that if we change this circumstance or this person or this church or this community or whatever, that things will get better. Maybe you're tired of playing, uh, playing the tax game in Illinois, and you just think, man, if I could just get out of this state, my life would be so much better. All of these things reveal an all problem. Our capacity for awe of God increases as we reflect on his faithfulness. Let me say that again. Our capacity for awe of God increases as we reflect on his faithfulness, which means this. If you have little awe, you have little reflection. If you have little awe, you have little reflection. When we turn our eyes to the creator, our perspective of creation changes. When we turn our eyes to God who's worthy of our awe and our worship, our desire to worship and serve creation decreases. When we turn our eyes to God whose riches and wisdom and knowledge are so beyond us, we are far more impressed with him than we are of ourselves. I I want... You just, I, want, I want to see God use this psalm to just stir your heart this morning, to give you a yearning and a longing and a hunger for him. And so as we consider the reality of awe this morning and the work of awe this morning and the effect of awe this morning, I want, I want the, the scriptures to pull you in to see how God not only deals tenderly with his people, but he is glorious and majestic and amazing and greater than you and I could even ask or imagine and is willing to do greater things in your life than you could even understand. And it starts with your holiness and progress in the gospel. I hope that God pulls you in to taste and see God's goodness this morning and truly feel the weight of Jesus' words when he says, whoever longs and wishes to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What does it profit a man to seek satisfaction in creation rather than being pulled toward the creator? And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 to start. And the song begins with a shout. Shout for joy. Shout for joy. Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing, sing, sing. Just this refrain of, of the fact that the, 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 the psalmist is inviting you to join in a song praising and worshiping your creator. It's not a rage of terror. This is a shout for joy. It's an invitation. The author is inviting us into something. And, and so as we join in the song of God's glory this morning, we have to first see that the reality of all is worship. The reality of all is worship. And in worship, we feast on God's glory. We feast on God's glory. Later in, this, in, the, in the psalm, you'll see uh, the author reflecting on what God did when he brought uh, Israel out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. We'll, we'll look at that here in a minute. That starts in verse 5. But one of the things, that it, one of the things we learn as we, as we see the psalmist celebrating God's past faithfulness is it gives us a template for what we can do as well. And it gives us 
things that we can draw from. You see, the, the whole Old Testament is filled with images and reflections of the redemption that Jesus has accomplished now in the family and life of the people of Israel. It gives us an image of how God works. It, it helps us see his character at work as he redeems his people and calls them out of Egypt and brings them into the promised land, right? And so one of the amazing pictures of this is, is the Mount Sinai scene in Exodus 19. Israel comes out of Egypt. They're, they're, they're carried into the wilderness, and they, and they venture to this foot of this mountain. What do we know about this mountain? Well, previously, Moses was confronted by God at this mountain in the burning bush scene. He's called by God to go get the nation of Israel and bring them back to that mountain where God will come down and make a covenant with his people. He will make a commitment to be faithful to his unfaithful people in Exodus 19. So Israel approaches the mountain. They, they, They see thunder and lightning and the, the whole mountain is enveloped in smoke and there's fire coming from the mountain and the earth is shaking. I would be terrified, like absolutely terrified. But if you want a good picture of God's glory and his grandeur, look at Exodus 19. It reminds us of the glory that we're called to feast on every single time we, we gather together for corporate worship. And so as, as we think about our creator, are we in a singing mood this morning? Maybe you're not in a singing mood this morning. Let me encourage you, sing until God gets you in a singing mood. Remind yourself of the promises of God until they are so in you that they're, they're bonded to your identity and who you are. Listen, if your excuse of avoiding fellowship with the saints is you don't feel like it, unite yourself to the body and fellowship with the saints until God shows you that it's not about you and how you feel. It's about him and his glory and his, his majesty. And yet at the same time, I tell you what, man, on the, on the days where I don't feel like coming here, when I come here and I sing and I actually sing, I don't just stand, but I sing. And I, and I remind myself of the, God's faithfulness to me and God's faithfulness to Tom who's sitting next to me or my wife or, or another member of our church. And I reflect on that. You know what? It, it, I might have not been in the mood when I got here, but I leave here different. And I don't just mean emotionally different. I mean I'm, I'm in awe of God's redemptive work and his people different. As we think about approaching our creator, are we stunned? Like, like are you stunned by God? Is it staggering to, to recall and think about how he's been at work in your life or in your marriage or in your community or in your friends or in our church? Does that stagger you? Are you stunned that he would even stoop down to pay attention to little old you? Are we stunned that he filled the earth with such amazing things that we get to enjoy just to point back to how awesome he is? Like good pancakes. I'm serious. I'm not even a sweets breakfast guy. I'm like a sausage and eggs breakfast guy. But good pancakes, they point me to the glory of my creator. Like people think of mountains in the Grand Canyon. I think of a good meal. Like seriously. That God would give us herbs and spices 
and flour and water, and we just combine them all into this thing, and it's this amazing meal appealing to all of our senses. But what about the, the touch of someone who cares? That reminds me how awesome God is when my wife just hangs out next to me. We don't even say anything. She's just chilling. But it reminds me how awesome God is. I was just uh, in Richmond, Virginia for the last week. I was, I was there doing some school stuff. And um, one of the most difficultly awesome parts of that trip was driving 12 hours by myself. And uh, so I'm in the mountains of Virginia. And uh, I remember I was, I was driving. I was on 64, heading east. And I'm coming down the mountain, right? You know, like you do the perpetual up-down thing when you're in the mountains. But it doesn't feel like up-down because you're like doing all this too. It's a really fun drive. But I remember um, I was on top of this mountain and I was coming down the road and there was this break in the tree line. And I didn't realize this, but there was actually an exit ramp to this little section where people could like just get off and chill and check out what they were looking at. And so this break in the tree line and then this amazing field, like it was a, it was a field and then probably eight to 10 miles out of the field, this just huge mountain and like a range of mountains as far as the eye could see. And I'm driving past this thing at like 79 miles an hour because, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was speeding. I was in a hurry. And um, so I'm cruising like 79 miles an hour past this thing. And it was just quick enough for me to like, oh, and then back on the road. And I was like, oh, man, that's, that's cool. Isn't that so similar to what our relationship with God is like, our, our experience of his glory? We're so focused on what we want to do, what we want to accomplish, our dreams, our goals, our vision, our wants, our desires, that we get a moment of transcendent glory and we go, oh man, that's cool, and we keep going. We open up our Bibles, and here's the thing, you might be like super Christian. You might read three chapters a day, but you close your Bible and then you don't think about it anymore. You're like, that's cool. Are we staggered by glory? Are we stunned by glory? Verse 3 talks about uh, God's enemies. It's a really, really interesting passage because I don't know about you, but when I think about glory, I don't think about God's enemies, right? But the author does something really, really interesting here. He says, how awe-inspiring are your works? Well, then he tells us how awe-inspiring his works are. He says this, your enemies will cringe before you. It reminds me of this passage in Mark 5 where Jesus gets off of a, of, of a boat. What time is it? Okay. Um, where Jesus gets off of a boat and as he's getting off a boat, a demon-possessed man runs to him, makes a beeline to him, and falls on his face. And you're, you're wondering, like, as you're reading the story, you're like, who is this? Is this, is, this, is this the demon that's bowing, or is it the man that's bowing? And here's the thing. All of the dialogue coming out of the man is the demon. And as the story unfolds, the demon identifies himself as legion, which is a, 
a, a Greek word used in Roman military jargon to refer to a, a, a group of like 6,000 soldiers. So imagine a man who's filled with 6,000 of God's enemies bowing before him. Are you kidding me? We can take a lot of comfort in that. The greatest powers and authorities on this planet that stand in opposition on our king are required to bow before him and submit to him. What? And you're afraid of your boss? I'm afraid of my, my family that doesn't know Jesus. I'm afraid of the person who sits next to me who's, who's maybe Muslim and, and I don't, I, I'm just terrified. I don't know what to do. But Jesus himself demands the allegiance and authority of legions of enemies. In Psalm chapter 2, referring to, or in Philippians chapter 2, referring to King Jesus, it says, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why do we sing? We sing because we have won, because we worship and serve a king who rules over all things. Defeated people do not sing. This is why we sing. We sing to declare and remind and encourage. And we, who do we sing for? When we, let's get practical for a minute. When we gather together, when we come in here, a band comes up on stage. Why are we doing that? Can I be honest with you? Do you know what breaks my heart? When people get more excited about the instruments than, than the music who, who's who's the music that should pull us to glory. You know, what, you know what bothers me? When we get more about the production of the worship band than we do the God we're supposed to sing to. And we think that if we have fog machines and lights up here, it's more honoring than just some bro playing an acoustic guitar singing How Great Thou Art. Do not let your desire for the service to be excellent to take your eyes off the God who is excellent. Don't forget the glory of just simple worship. Do you know my favorite part about coming here and singing on Sunday morning is? It's you. It's hearing you sing in the midst of your terror, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your despair, knowing that when everything in your life is pointing to defeat, you know that you can cling to Jesus because you have victory in him. And you're singing. And you shouldn't be singing because everything in your life is hell. But you're singing. Because you know that God's promises are true and you will not move away from them. That is worship. That is true and good and lovely and acceptable to the Lord. People who sing in a world where their circumstances change like night and day, we still sing. The reality of all is, faith, is faithful worship the work of all is remembering his faithfulness. Come and see the wonders of God. And then he just starts recounting God's past faithfulness in his word to Israel, both in delivering them from Egypt and fulfilling his promises to get them to the promised land. 
What things do we get out of this passage that we're encouraged to remember? Well, I would say three things in verses five through seven that we're encouraged to remember. God's deliverance, God's promises, and God's sovereignty. God's deliverance, his promises, and his sovereignty. Here's, here's what I mean. God's deliverance. We see them celebrating God, bringing them out of Egypt. This is the parting of the Red Sea. This is what he's talking about when he says he turned the sea into dry land, and then he says they crossed the river on foot. That's not a, a confliction. He's talking about the two times Israel crossed bodies of water. One was to get out of the land of Egypt. The second time was to get into the land of the promise. Don't miss what the author's doing here. He's pointing at two different things. God's promises to deliver and God's promises to do what he said he would do. Paul rejoices in similar deliverance in Colossians chapter 1, talking about the church when he says this. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we now have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If the author who wrote this psalm can draw back on God's deliverance of, of, of the tyranny of Egypt over the nation of Israel, how much more can we celebrate God's deliverance over us for rescuing us from the tyranny of sin and death? And giving us Jesus Christ, the, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Everything was created by him and for him. And from him we experience life. And it's only in faith in that name that we get that deliverance. The same kind of deliverance the psalmist is celebrating in Psalm 66 is the same kind of deliverance that we get in Jesus Christ the King of kings and the Lord of lords who ransomed himself so that we could have life. Doesn't that just energize you? Doesn't that charge you? Doesn't that encourage you? We remind ourselves of God's past deliverance. Both that, yes, we didn't deserve it, but also this is where we were. Don't focus on just where we were. Don't, don't say, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. Yes, amen, you are, I am. An enemy of God needing judgment and condemnation but look at where we're going. This is deliverance. He takes us out of this and he moves us somewhere else and calls us adopted children of the most high God. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people cherished and loved by God, called and chosen by God, washed and purified by the power of his spirit, redeemed and being redeemed, declared holy and progressively growing in that holiness. If Israel had a reason to celebrate and remember God's faithfulness in the Exodus story, how much more do we have reason to celebrate and remember what Christ has accomplished for us at the cross and in his resurrection, knowing now that he's seated on high until his enemies are put under his feet? And so we celebrate deliverance. Let it pull us into awe and worship. But we also celebrate and remember God's promises. God's promises. Joshua 3, Israel experienced the crossing of the Jordan River. As they were crossing the Jordan River, um, Moses directed men from every tribe of Israel to at the, from the bottom of the river, grab stones and take those stones out of the river. And then they set up a monument. Why? Why is this important? Because this was the moment that God was fulfilling his promises to his people all the way back in Genesis 15 when he said to Abraham, you will have this land. 
Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans and will give you this land to possess. The fulfillment of that promise is happening in Joshua 3. So what do the people of God do? They get stones to remind themselves that God is faithful to do what he says. And between the space of your Bible, between Genesis 15 and Joshua 3, is a long list of reasons why God shouldn't be faithful. In fact, it what the authors do in, in the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and culminating in Joshua is point back at these events in the past that show that there is absolutely no human fallenness that can stand in the way of what God will accomplish. Because what you see is God's people fail and fail again and fail again and fail again, and, that, and yet God is faithful to complete what he started when he made this promise to Abraham. Joshua 3 is the fulfillment of that promise. They're in the promised land. They're doing the thing. And Moses is wise, and he says, don't forget this. And so, friends, don't forget how God has saved you. Don't forget how he brought you here. Don't forget how he forgave your past sin. Don't forget that he promised that he won't leave you where you are. Don't forget. God's promises humble and motivate and preserve us. Don't forget them. If you want a, a, a fire hose of promises, maybe you're hurting this morning, you're weary, you're tired, just read Romans 8. In fact, memorize Romans 8. Yes, I said memorize a whole chapter of the Bible. I promise you it's, a, it's possible. I can attestify this because when I was in school, I had to memorize the preamble of the Constitution, which is much more boring. You can do Romans 8. When I was like in fifth grade, I could do the preamble. You got this. Read Romans 8. Rest in Romans 8. It starts with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, who can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Can, can, can enemies, angels, demons, trials, tribulations? Nothing can stand against God's elect. Encouraging chapter of the Bible. Rest in that. Rest in that. And God's sovereignty. Look, y'all, the nation's going crazy. Amen? I watch Democratic debates. I, I, I'm not making a political statement. It's just crazy. It's all crazy. Okay? In this psalm, we see a God who is sovereign over the nations. The nations. He bends countries to do his will. If you don't believe me, read the end of Kings. In fact, he will use wicked, sinful governments and authorities to accomplish his will and be glorified by it. But listen to this. Read the end of the book. Babylon will fall. Wicked human society that boasts in its own power and accomplishment will fall and the people of God will reign. God is sovereign over the nations and will defeat wicked nations for his glory and our good. And we will celebrate and reign with Jesus Christ, the king of all creation for all time. Stop freaking out about the election, y'all. It's okay. God is sovereign. And I'm not just saying that to you. Like, I'm saying that to myself. I'm freaking out about the election. Like, dang, this is crazy. But God is sovereign over the nations. And that is a promise that gives me comfort in my frail, fickle heart. And I pray that it would give you comfort in yours. The effect of all is devotion. It's devotion. 
The reality of awe is worship. The work of awe is remembering his faithfulness. The effect of awe is our devotion, our love, our affection for the king. And one of the interesting things that he does in this is he, as he thinks about God's faithfulness, he thinks about God's involvement in his suffering. Don't miss this. Verse 10, for you, God, tested us. You refined us. You placed burdens on our back. You let men ride over our heads. This guy's getting thrown through the ringer. This is wilderness language. He's recalling what God did with Israel in the wilderness. Forty years of difficulty and suffering for the people of Israel before God's promise was fulfilled. Now, why is this image helpful for us? Because each of us suffer. That is, that is a, a true promise of not just the scriptures, but also just a product of living in a fallen world. And I think there are three ways in here that we can see God's presence in our suffering help us. I think the first is this. We, we, can, we can take comfort in his active role. God's actively involved here. He's not passive in this person's suffering. The psalmist knows that God is not uninvolved. And James, recalling on this similar theme, says this, to start his book when he writes in James chapter 1, count it joy, my brothers, when you consider, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. Why can James, why can the scriptures call us to take comfort in suffering? Second reason. Because it keeps our eyes on the goal, not, not the current, not, not our circumstances. It keeps our eye on the goal, not the means. Here's what I mean. James continues in, in verse 3. And let steadfastness, so he says, count it all joy. Why? Because your suffering is producing something in you. It's creating something in you. It's giving you steadfastness. Now, how is steadfastness useful for the Christian? Verse 3. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Think of a cup overflowing with abundance. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let me ask you this, church. Do you want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Then don't run from your suffering. Embrace Christ in your suffering. Do you want to be steadfast? Hold on to Jesus when everything in your life is telling you to let go of him. Awe helps us see that God's involvement is taking us to glory. Awe helps us see that the temporary cross on our backs as followers of Jesus is just that. It's temporary. It's temporary. And it's preparing us for an eternal crown of life that will never spoil or fade when we finish the race and get done when we are old and gray and at the end of our life we can look back at our track record with the Lord and stand firm and say, you know what, I'm real. I'm a believer in Christ and he has preserved me through all of this craziness. The Bible doesn't tell us to ignore our suffering. The Bible encourages us to acknowledge where we are and cling to Christ as he takes us through it to glory. Don't forget that the way to glory is through the shadow of death, not around it but your good shepherd will carry you there. He will carry you home. He promises to do so. And so we draw near to God. We don't escape. Right? Our flesh wants to use the temptations and trials of our life to escape, to indulge. 
But rather than running to creation for our comfort, we run to Jesus for our comfort. Awe of God instead moves us near to the Lord for our comfort and our confidence so that we can stand firm and get through the test. Lastly, God's involvement in our suffering encourages us because we know that we can worship and not worry. He will protect us. He will take us through. And so rather than fretting and worshiping and trying to grasp for control, we can let go and surrender and worship a king who gave himself for us. And so we know he's got us. He's got us. Awe of God produces a desire for others to come and hear what God has done. I don't want you to miss verses 16 through 20. The psalmist goes from an invitation for all creation to participate and then a general invitation for everybody to to hear about God's faithfulness to his people. But then at the end, in verse 16, the author transitions and it's a very, very specific invitation for the, the reader to hear about what God has done for them personally. Personally. He does two things. He promotes his neediness and promotes the loving consistency of a God who will Always listen to his prayers. It makes me think of Paul when he says, I'll boast in my weaknesses because I know in my weaknesses he is made strong. Verses 16 through 20 serve as a great model for us as, as we think about approaching God this morning to take the Lord's Supper. Let me read it for us today. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried out with him to my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He's not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. At Cross Point, you're reminded of the good news of what Christ has accomplished to you every Sunday. But when we celebrate communion, we hold in our hands signs and symbols pointing to that which we experience day in, day out. Christ gave himself for his people. If you've experienced the truth communion points to, it changes communion. And if you haven't experienced the truth communion points to, I would encourage you to just let the elements pass by. If you've not confessed Christ in faith and experienced the regenerating work of the Spirit in your life as a sign and a seal of that faith, please don't join us in communion this morning. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, no one here will look down on you. In fact, in fact, everyone here who is a believer in Christ will have a greater respect for you because you're not taking this lightly, and, and we thank you for that. If you are in Christ, we invite you to join us. But ask that you would join us with an attitude of reflection and celebration. If you have unconfessed sin, confess it. Confess it to God and to others. Maybe you and your spouse got into it last night. You, you got to, like, hey, honey, before we, before we do this, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Maybe you need to have a little conversation like that. That's That's, that's beautiful. Don't miss the opportunity God gives us in the communion to, to reconcile ourselves to him and reconcile with others. 
to reflect what God did in Christ Jesus in our relationships with other people. Forgiving and not holding our sins against us. In communion, we're reminded of two massive truths. Our desperate need for the blood and body of Jesus and the fact that it has been given to us. So it is totally not inappropriate to celebrate and be joyful taking communion. Because it is the fulfillment of God's promises to us. And through that, we can celebrate and remember. Christ at the cross was treated as guilty so that we could be free. And so I pray that this morning we would be reminded of that freedom as we approach the bread and the cup together.